everyone. Welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, a podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, game masters, and enthusiasts like Josh and myself. I am, of course, Dan. With me, of course, is Josh. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. We had a small hiatus. And before we get on to the, your emails, which everything today is going to be all quizzical, um, a major life event happened. None of us are happy about it. But I have to say that without Mary, Josh's wife, this podcast would not exist. Because no, certainly without Mary. Not, certainly <laughs> not in the form that it does. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, Mary, uh, who I was with, my wife, who was I was with for just shy of 20 years, um, passed away due to complications of COVID-19 a couple of weeks back in uh, mid-November. Um, and it's been uh, a rough couple of weeks. People who you know, follow me on social media and so forth are, are aware of what was going on. Um, and I am sort of finding my way back to a new normal. Yeah. And I certainly appreciate everybody's support and understanding and everything in the wake of that. Yeah. Because I was hired in – hired, air quotes, hired. I was uh, – uh, I, I volunteered. I auditioned, per se, for the FASA open, open call back in like, what, 2014, 2013, somewhere in there. And I was assigned to this new game I'd never heard of called Demon World, and Mary was the line developer. And so I worked for Mary. I submitted things for Mary. And then I think you had a project that needed to be uh, a quick pinch hit on. And so Mary said, well, Dan knows Earth Dawn, mm-hmm. so contact Dan. He'll, he'll fill in for you. And you asked me to do two pieces. I did two pieces. That was fine. But without Mary, you and I would not have this relationship back and forth predating the podcast to lean on to now create the podcast. So without Mary, this podcast would not exist in this form as we all know it. That that is accurate. So um, raising a uh, a can of Coke Zero or whatever you happen to be drinking – I otherwise would, but it would keep me up tonight. But otherwise, I'd drink that all day long. But, um, yeah. Yes. So, um, yeah, I I will avoid the long rant about the utter failure of the federal government uh, of the United States in all of this. Yeah. You know, the, the, the <laughs> local thing here in Maine where I live, it's been pretty good. Um, you know, the folks at the, the hospital where Mary and I both worked, that was our day gig. Everybody local done everything, did everything that they can and have been wonderful and supportive. But this is the sort of, this could have, this could have been avoided. This could have been avoided yes. by, a, a response, a, any response, um, at a at a national level, rather than the denial and see, I'm going into it anyway. Um, you know, rather than the than <laughs> um, anybody who has been paying attention to the news is aware, I think, and I won't go into it more than that. Mary will be missed by all those who knew and loved yes. her, and that includes the two of us. No one more than you, no one more than the kids. So 
we have a podcast because of Mary. So Mary, this one's for you, even though you didn't actually actually ask us a question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) A very, very brief little levity there. Sorry. Um, That's okay. But uh, yeah. Anyway, so let's get to the distraction, which is the podcast. And we can take your mind off of things for the next hour or so. And we can actually ask some Earth Dawn related questions from all the listeners who have nicely put up with my uh, legendary recordings over the last two episodes we've released. Um, <laughs> all feedback is wonderful. Good or, po- good or, good or bad, I don't care. Um, I pinched hit I pinched hit again, so I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, so first email comes in from Lee, who has uh, some things, uh, some long-winded things to say, which is fine because I'm long-winded as well as are all of us here. Hi, guys. Still tuning in. Well, that's good. Uh, still enjoying the discussions and rambling. Thank you for the persistence. A couple of random thoughts on what does a spirit want question that we posed or someone else actually posed. So applicable to all spirits, a gift of karma. I don't think there's anything to argue with on that one. Yeah, no, uh, I, I think I mentioned that in response to one of the earlier questions we got on that, which is that karma just sort of as a representation of, of life force or magical energy that the spirit yeah. would want. It's nice and generic. So on, exactly. Onto his elementals. What elementals might want. It's, as it's pretty difficult for players to literally set the world on fire or drown it entirely underwater, the easy option is a gift of true elemental energy appropriate to the elemental type. And the less easy option is to cause the closure of an opposed true element node. Yeah, Thoughts? that's yeah, that's that's actually good if you're dealing with elementals. If you have kernels of a true element, those could be donated or could be something similar to karma as it would perhaps be a way for the spirit to to gain power but yeah also to do something that might cause the uh closure or destruction of a node of a rival a rival or or opposed element yeah and that could even be made like a small side quest if you don't mm-hmm. have one on you then go find one and come back so you can lengthen the campaign that way sure uh onto like a beast spirit what they might want. Uh, rival dominance, uh, for example, a rabbit spirit might give the shaman a single-use item to easily summon it again later, and then task them to locate an eagle, fox, or other rival spirit, defeat it, summon the rabbit spirit, and bind the defeated spirit in servitude to it for a year and a day. That's an interesting idea. <laughs> I kind of like that. It's um... creative and yet specific. Yeah. I, I appreciate both of those both of those points. Um, also maybe to provide food for a specific animal type for a set amount of time, as in, you know, pay the Mm -hmm. rabbits in this warrant, you know, feed them for like a month or whatever the case may be. Um, right. Again, the rabbit thing. I only say that because I have a couple of rabbits living in my backyard that anyone's welcome to come take. Um, or, uh, what a bee spirit might want is some animal type is being corrupted by a horror. Go heal it or stop the corruption. Yeah. That's something that would definitely be. Uh, a bit more appropriate for a side quest or or secondary goal. Like if you, you know, maybe if you prep it ahead of time, you know, maybe have it as something that comes up. But unlike, say, karma or donation of true elements or, you know, something basic that you can kind of come up with off the cuff, something where you, you've got, you know, a, a situation with a horror having tainted or corrupted spirit, would probably be something that would need a little bit more planning and that you would need to kind of have an idea, even if you didn't necessarily know exactly when, but you could have an idea of how that might fit into your uh, ongoing campaign in one way or another. 
Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and then his last thoughts on, on, on the allies' spirits and what they might want. It's lonely. You will talk to it for, you know, three hours and 45 minutes, three times a week for seven months and then a week after that. So that's possible. Just keep it, you know, keep it company, I suppose. Or perhaps it is curious and each member of the party will read out their journal aloud in full to the spirit. Which I think would just be fun for role-playing aspects, <laughs> but that's just me. Uh, and then the area where it lives has become neglected, so therefore uh, clean it, renovate it, you know, bring it back up again, things like that. Sure. Or uh, people don't live there anymore because of rumors, uh, so convince some kind of populist to, or someone to come in, to move in and stay there and, you know, put up shop, I guess. So, or maybe the ally spirit would like an interesting rock. Rocks Thank cool. you, Lee. Yeah. Those are I all, like those interesting are all, rocks. Yeah, those are all great suggestions. Um, you know, the, the and the some of them are of of varying complexity and involvement. You've got some that would be kind of fairly easy to 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 deal with, and and some that could provide their own sort of plot hook and adventure of their own. I think one of the important things to look at if you have player characters in your group that are going to be dealing with spirits is as you know even if it's not necessarily specific for a given session that you mm -hmm. do some planning ahead and thinking about you know the, with the types of spirits that they are likely to be dealing with you know some things that you can come up with ahead of time to have ready to go uh in case something like that shows up yeah so lee i want to come play in your game that uh <laughs> may not be a, a high compliment for you that you, th you think that might not be a high compliment for you, but it actually is. I would love to come play in your game. Those all sound very creative and are more than I would have been able to think of had I been given a week's time to do so. So I appreciate all of those suggestions. Uh, so on to Shane and Shane is a, a, a double dipper this week. He actually sent us two emails. So the first of which is rather lengthy, but again, we got time. So we're all good. Thank you for hanging with us. Uh, hello again. Thank you for the for addressing my cavalryman question on episode 43, which I have just gotten to today as I catch up. You both raised some interesting points, and I fully agree that without sacred cow slaughter, and I do like the sacred cows of Earthdawn, that it is the discipline it is. It's just a shame it isn't as usable in more campaign styles. However, it leads me to a follow-up uh, follow on arising from the points made about the idea of a path. And he prefaces this by saying he doesn't know the paths look like in detail, as he didn't back that Kickstarter due to international shipping costs. Um, but we'll go from there. With that in mind, instead of the idea of a path to replace the discipline to allow the cavalrymen to be more applicable in other campaigns, a path that allows limited talent use in the mounted space for other disciplines would help make all mounted-style campaigns more feasible. Care would have to be given to preserve the cavalryman's niche in that case, but it merits thought, he thinks. So what would that look like? I the second part later. don't know what it would necessarily look like. I mean, I think I, that's probably a decent avenue to look at um, in terms of uh, a, a horseman's path or something along those lines that would maybe give access to some talents or knacks or something like that, that, that were not otherwise available to anyone, but the cavalrymen. But yeah, that, that's something that you would want to be careful about what you give that path 
because you wouldn't want to give it something that the cavalryman doesn't have fair for the most part um because obviously you you don't want the path to potentially make a more effective cavalryman than the cavalryman (laughs) and you don't necessarily want to go giving you know that path access to some things that are unique or strongly associated with the cavalryman adept Mm -hmm. you know you might avoid giving access to like wheeling attack and wheeling defense wheeling attack especially because that's one of the things that really boosts the cavalryman's offensive capability with charge and whatnot i don't know that that would certainly be i mean it makes sense potentially that that there would be something like that that existed among some uh groups in bar save mm-hmm. or perhaps other parts of of the world um especially if you look at something like you know the the um, the the scorcher bands or or nomadic groups or whatever that are strongly associated with the cavalrymen, there would potentially be adepts of other disciplines, and not necessarily everybody would be dual discipline in that regard. So, yeah, I, I think a path that would add some additional mounted capability onto other disciplines would be an interesting. Yeah, uh, design space to to explore. I don't, you know, it might end up only being a, a minor path, you know, just in terms of like limiting its potential power. I like I said, you didn't, you wouldn't want to go and give them tricks that the cavalryman doesn't have. Yeah, and you wouldn't want to give them too much, you know, compared to some of the special stuff for for cavalrymen. So you might be looking at something that is just a, a minor path, which means that it's only up to like rank five and only gives access to to a small selection of of talents and useful yeah. max. But yeah, that's you know that that would yeah that I, would I wouldn't be, say they'd need a whole lot. I just just yeah. like you said, a couple of ranks here and a couple of talent selections, and that's I can't say enough. But again, not to be better than the cavalrymen, just you know the sidecar to the motorcycle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> type that one. Uh, second part of his email is, uh, Shane has a bunch of questions for me specifically. Uh, he's about to start an earth dawn four game for my wife and teenagers as someone who has recently played fourth edition for the first time, but has played plenty of first edition. What are Dan's experiences of them in play in terms of differences? And what are your tips for someone crossing editions? Which is my, my tips are, are always read your character sheet, know what you can do and how everything you have works. That's my, Period. And in any game, anywhere, anytime. Even, um, especially if you're crossing editions, <laughs> even if you think you know what it does, double check. Yes. Because there are things that have changed and maybe not dramatically, but enough that, you know, you, you. Yeah. I mean, it's not the end of the world if you use a, no. a, an earlier version of a talent or something in accident. And you remember you remember it the way it used to be, not the way it is now. Yeah, that's well. That's, that's, I mean, we've done that a lot. I've I've mentioned, <laughs> yeah, I've mentioned my own experience with. Oh, not I mean, and I'm in a situation where not only do I have the various edition versions mm-hmm. in my head, I've also got the iterations that some of the stuff went through in the development of fourth. So I've got not not like <laughs> not just like the maybe four the the three or four different variations of of some talents. In yeah. some cases, it's like seven or eight or whatever. The ones that never saw print are still yeah, rattling around that, in your yeah. brain pan. <laughs> <laughs> we 
we had this idea for this one and it, oh, that's not the way it went. Never mind. I shouldn't say that out loud. Yeah. Stuff like that. What thing, what are, uh, what things tripped up my GM on the change? And that was his expectation of what the circles of our characters could do and what kind of challenge level to throw at us was some figuring out on his part as far as he's like, I thought these guys would be easy and they almost killed us. And then the next session we sat there and he's like, I thought these things would be hard. And we wiped the floor with them in like two rounds. And so he was having trouble figuring out exactly the right level to throw at us because with the exploding dice as Earthon's always had, but the success levels varied things a lot for him. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those, oh, your success levels are stupidly high. And okay, then. So we get to roll, you know, different damage dice. And he's like, and that's where I lost all my stuff. So for him to figure out where that level was, was a little hard to do. But then he found the the chart that we've talked about before, where you figure out the the challenge level based upon all the character stats. Yeah. And you kind of go with that. And then he's also throwing a couple of masks on some things. And so that, you know, leveled things out as well. So that, it took him a while, a little balancing act, some finagling, but he got that down. So the other thing I will, I will say as, as somebody who's recently played fourth for the first time, but uh, my, my differences are this really, the setting hasn't changed a whole lot. The, the timeline has been forwarded. So that's not too different. The success levels takes some getting used to. The talents and spells, uh, to Josh's point, have been tweaked or changed. So ranges might be different. Durations might be different. The extra threads, there's a whole new wrinkle in there. Uh, I've not played a spellcaster yet, but uh, I got one friend of mine, a player, who's working on the spellcasting part, and he's having a hard time with the, the changes in spells. Um, but otherwise, yeah, the uh, the thing that was fun for me to get used to was, oh yeah, I don't have to be stingy with my karma anymore. And we got into trouble where, uh, one of my, the, the character playing alongside me was having a real hard time and he started getting hit really bad and his wounds started stacking up. And so I'm like, okay, all bets are off. I'm putting karma on every single action I'm doing. And that saved our bacon. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie. So that was the difference is, okay, I used to be sparing with my karma and I don't have to be anymore. Mm-hmm. And that took some getting used to for me as the player. So that's pretty much my, my, uh, my thoughts on that one. So yeah, Shane, thank you if for you're coming. Out. If you're coming from first edition, the, the thing that you need to sort of get a handle on with karma is that while you short term, you don't necessarily have as much to draw on, especially at lower circles long term because there's no daily limit like you get x basically per day you get however yeah. many points you have per day and there's no spending for them it's just kind of a pool that that refreshes mm-hmm. daily and so short term you might not have as much to draw on as you did in previous editions particularly first or second yeah first couple circles are a little little light a little light but long term you don't necessarily need to worry about, oh, but we might be at the doing that, diving into that care in two days. I better save my karma now so that I have it for that. You can spend your karma today and not have to worry so much about those resources for tomorrow. It, yeah. it does, in some respects, step away a little bit from the some of the the original metaphysics of how things were supposed to work. Mm -hmm. But I, 
have found that it's a little bit more gameable. Yeah, I will say my 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 entire party as we get our points, we're like it is so much more fun not to have to allocate points for my karma pool for the next, you know, two two or three adventures until I can raise it up again. And so we're like, hey, I could just spend the points on talents or <laughs> things like that. I don't have to you set aside 200 points for my karma pool just to sit there and take those down every time I do a cover tool and get more karma that day. We love that part. So that took some mm-hmm. getting used to as well to go, oh, look. And that, believe me, it wasn't it wasn't a long getting used to. We're like, oh, after two sessions, we're like, yeah, we like this part. We like this part of the game. <laughs> Not having to spend to allocate points to just hang on to karma for a while. So that was that was the best part. So otherwise, a couple things, but you'll get used to it. And then the fun part for me was uh, going back and running an Earth on Classic campaign and I was like, wow, okay, this is not the exploding, this is not the success levels anymore. It's still the armor defeating hits and so forth and so on. And it didn't feel clunky. It didn't feel like a, you know, an old warm blanket to go back to. It was one of those, okay, and this is different. And we're getting used to this again. And that's a little hard to, you know, you, you, I played fourth edition on Sunday and I ran classic on Wednesday. And so that three days difference was one of those, okay, I need to wrap my headspace around just the slight difference in mechanics. And that was pretty much it. So, and building your character is more versatile in fourth edition. I'll say that. Yes. That's, that was, that was the fun part is, is it was more versatile just to say, I get this one automatic, but I get to choose the other one I want always, 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 always. And that was a different, a different feel to get used to as well. But again, enjoying it, absolutely enjoying all the changes to fourth edition. So if, uh, I remember when D&D went to third edition, they actually put out a guide. Hey, here's your AD&D character from second, AD&D second to port them into third with these rules. Do that. And I was like, that's a nice little booklet to have. I still have that booklet, but I can't imagine <laughs> Josh is shaking his head like, oh, for the love of Pete. No. I know what they were trying to do with that, but it was... <laughs> my my feelings on the effectiveness of that. I, I am more of the opinion of rather than trying to do a conversion in that regard, mm-hmm. just, I mean, there you're, you're sort of just like, it, it's a, yeah, I, yeah, it was, it was, it was fine. It was a thing. It wasn't, yeah, it was a thing. It was, a thing. It was not it, Earthon. We're okay. It was fine. So uh, Shane's second email, um, two emails in one week. Crazy. So the episode 46 name question from Doomsie made me think there is one other element that neither Dan nor Josh mentioned that needs consideration. Names are often cultural, and Josh has mentioned a few times that Earthdawn doesn't typically have monocultures by race. Therefore, name variation is likely to be more within a race than is typical in fantasy. The names of Throlic elves should probably have more in common with the names of Throlic dwarves than they do with the names of elves from Cathay, for example. And Shane imagines obsidian and Siskrang names, at least true names, not nicknames, are more likely to be semi-consistent due to the early life, uh, life rocks in Oropogoi. Likewise, those elves linked strongly with the elven kingdoms might also have similar names across geography. But otherwise, I say embrace the variety of names to support the non-monoculture setting. Yes. Is Shane off the mark on that process? No, I don't think Shane is is off the mark with that at all. I think that's actually a, a very good point that... At least in, you know, in, in in that aside from Obsidimen, the the Tuscrang, which are tend to be a little bit more 
their own thing. They, I mean, where they, they mix with other name givers, but their culture tends to be a little bit more pure. Like, yeah. If you know what I mean? Isolated. I don't mean that in a bad way. Well, not isolated, not isolated is not the right mm-hmm. word, but they, you know, it's because they have a very different biology because they, mm-hmm. they are egg laying. They're, yes. they're oviparous as opposed to the, the more sort of traditional human mammalian thing that most mm-hmm. of the, the name givers are, you know, they, they have their own strong, like their the Tuscrang culture is so strongly identified with the river and the, the, the crew well, covenants and, and Europagoy and things like that, that their naming conventions and so forth are, are apt to be a little bit, are apt to be more consistent than you would see even in villages out in the out in the plains because you would still have a mix of name giver races and and the traditions especially after centuries of those communities largely being together during the scourge you could see like a real melting pot or melange of naming conventions and different styles depending on the history of that community yeah and the the the, the scrang really are raised by a village yeah versus like an individual family unit they are more of a collective um operating family that way so i would and their, their names are borrowed and inherited and and parsed and so forth and so on so yeah they'd be a little bit different i just know that the f- previous writers verthon didn't place a very big emphasis on it and so right. it would be nice to eventually shoehorn that or corral it, <laughs> sort of make it gel a little bit into a, into a form or a structure. But I I also love the fact that, you know, just name your character. Go for it. It's fun to do without any set kind of rules for, for things like that. So I, I, I've i come across name generators online and I'm kind of like, yep, that's not an Earthon type name. I just tend to know it. Mm-hmm. One of those things I've read enough of this stuff. So Shane, thank you for the, for the twofer. Uh, love the double shot of emails. Appreciate all your thoughts, loving all of them so far. And Lee is you as well. So this one's from Jesse, Jesse, AKA, uh, Falal Katan Vross. Hey fellas. He thinks we're fellas. I think during the Sky Raider episode, when you were discussing second weapon as a talent option, you noted that it pairs well with momentum attack because it could be triggered off by the primary attack with melee weapons as well as the secondary second weapon test. However, momentum attack says it can only be used once per round. Is there an errata for the player's guide that I missed? If not, it sounds like ripe candidate for a knack. If it actually says in the rule book, in the player's guide that it can only be used once per round, then that is what it should be. This is probably a case of previous editions um, blurring together in my head, because I don't think Momentum Attack had that limit previously. I think in earlier editions, it could be triggered off of any appropriate result from an attack, whether that was second attack or second weapon or anything like that. So if that's what it says in the book, and we're looking that up right now. As Literally, I... the last line of Momentum Attack, page 159. This talent can only be used once per round. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that no, there's there's not, we there's not errata down. on that. That is my brain misremembering. Um, uh, having it be a decently high ranking knack isn't a bad idea if you no. want to get around it. I mean... 
um, it might be one of those knacks where you not only need a rank of a certain level in momentum attack, but maybe it also has an additional requirement where you need, say, second weapon at a certain rank in order to be able to use it an additional time on second weapon. The thing about momentum attack is that let's say you were doing your your primary melee weapons attack and you just didn't you didn't roll high enough to trigger momentum attack. You could then use momentum attack for its normal once per round use on a second weapon or a second attack test that did meet those criteria. The limitation is just simply that you can't use momentum attack more than once. And I think part of that is just simply to limit the number of attacks that you can make because melee types tend to get a a lot of attacks as it is and allowing especially momentum attack to that becomes multiplicatively more powerful if you are able to use it multiple times in a round which is why the limitation is there you know when you think about it that basically it adds the potential to add one additional attack per round If it could trigger off of any attack, then suddenly if you've got melee weapon, second weapon, and second attack, each of which can trigger them, then you're no longer looking at, you're looking at potentially six attacks if you're rolling consistently high enough to allow a momentum attack off of each of those. And that just starts to get a little crazy and starts to tread onto the ground that is reserved for the true multi-attack talents like multi-shot, multi-attack, multi-charge, where... You are able to just straight as it is make multiple attacks in a round similar to, to Claw Frenzy, you know, that sort of thing. Those are all warden and master tier talents. No, the the, the <laughs> momentum attack is only once per round because I have like 40 different versions of stuff in my head. Fair enough. Uh, so thank you for Lalkatan of Ross. We loved hearing from you. Please get us some more. On to uh, Massage who is from Poland and give us a long one uh, email as well. And then I think we have a surprise email at the end, which is a uh, voicemail. So very fun. So good day. I'm massage from Poland. You can spell it as magic. And after approximately six months, I have just completed the whole list of episodes culminating with the 51st of the earth on survival guide. First, let me say thank you. It has been a wonderful journey, especially when you delve into details of the earth on lore, such as history, culture, and legends. He hasn't actually heard the last two that we posted for just Legends, but those were fillers. Uh, I think the background of Bar Save is what makes this RPG special, certainly better than D&D, his opinion, as it gives us much information, which eventually sharpens our imagination. Well done. I have myself been running a first edition game set in the province of Vivane for the past six years. What caught my attention was a thing you mentioned many episodes ago about some mysterious deposit of Orichalcum, which is located beneath the city of Vivane. Now, obviously, I have at my disposal only some of the books from first and fourth, from first edition and the fourth edition player's guide, and I have never heard of this issue. Thus, this revelation intrigues me, and I would like to know more about it. Why have the Therans created this deposit, and is it in any way connected with the Scourge? I remember reading about a similar thing on the island of Thera. If there is any source book dedicated to this topic, and I would be very grateful for any recommendation and whatnot, was it finally revealed why the Scourge stopped earlier than planned? Especially relating to those devices placed in cares, which were supposed to be were supposed to track the course of the scourge and the ball that stopped approximately two to three centimeters above the bowl. Again, any sources, he'd be happy to read more. So we got two major questions from him there. Yeah, so let's talk so about the Arcalcum and uh, a lot <laughs> of this info is not in any 
published source book. A lot of that um, orichalcum deposit under Vivane thing is revealed uh, in a couple of places. Well, revealed um, in the original outline slash proposal for Bar Save at War. Mm. You know, the, the, the one that was sort of had been put together at that point prior to the first edition line getting shuttered in, in back in the, the late 90s. Yes. And it's that document coupled with things that uh, Lou Prosperi, the original line developer, had talked about online and things like that. Um, it's possible, although I don't think so. I haven't read the material in it in quite a while. It's possible there might be some hints in the Vivane and Skypoint boxed set from first edition, but I don't actually think there's anything that really got mentioned in there. That is the one, that is the one thing from Earthon I've actually never read. I was hoping to hand that up to somebody to actually play it, to run it and mm-hmm. run me through it. So I didn't read it on purpose. Yeah, I, one, I have, I have, I have like flipped through stuff occasionally when looking up particular, like looking for particular pieces of information, but I have not really read that box set in quite a while fair so it's possible there may be references in there that i don't remember that might hint at it but basically the orichalcum deposit under vivane oh it's also kind of referenced and i couldn't exactly point you to the book but it's also kind of referenced in some uh Late second edition Shadowrun, or maybe early third edition Shadowrun, um, from around that same period, the very tail end of of Fassa's mm-hmm. run with the game, because of cross pollination and ideas and and things like that. So it's it's possible that there that some of the the stuff kind of ties into that as well. So under Vivane and in several other places around the world and um, on Great Thera. The, the island of Thera itself as well. A lot of the orichalcum, or so this sort of information is, a lot of the orichalcum was used to create magical artifacts called um, loci, singular locus. Mm-hmm. Rumor has it uh, that there was possibly one that was under uh, what is the present day wastes, um, and that may be connected with why they are the way they are. Although that is not something that we have left as anything more than a rumor but they're in various places and the idea behind them and this is part of the reason why thera was so interested in uh having as much orichalcum as they could possibly get before the scourge was basically to create a massive network of uh, basically a magical network that had these loci as various like points on it that mm-hmm. would artificially maintain the magic level basically to, to stop the magic level from dropping so it's high enough that they still have their magical power and their magical dominance but not so high that the horrors broadly speaking are able to to be around anymore yeah and this is all like you know like true heaven herds like immortal elf dragon mm-hmm stuff like this is the this is the deep one of the deep secret mysteries of the setting that really (laughs) drives 
like the broader conflict between various powers, but isn't something that is likely to become in, you know, important at the typical player level campaign sort of yeah. thing. And, you know, remembering, you know, sort of understanding again that that part of the reason that Thera was founded was because there was a faction of immortal elves that basically wanted to control the world. And so they took their knowledge of the scourge and found, you know, and of the coming scourge and the horrors, and they created a cover story for how they came about this information and basically founded a magical empire, the long term goal of which, uh, you know, something that plays out over the course of centuries or millennia, because they're immortals, they can plan that long, mm -hmm. was to uh, basically control the world. And, you know, part of that was get a whole bunch of magical, easily enchantable magical material, auric alchem, and seed it in important, seed large concentrations of it in important places around the world to yeah. artificially maintain the magic, the magic level so that they could maintain their, their dominance and essentially, um, run a magical empire that will last forever. Yeah. Um, hmm. Somehow manipulating things to keep yourself in power for as long as you possibly can. Yeah. Who does um, that? <laughs> and of, of course, you know, uh, it's not nice to fool with Mother Nature. And if no. you if you think of where the magic level is and where it should be in the course of the centuries that it rises and falls, the, the millennia, you know, the 5,000 or so years that a typical magic cycle goes, that the mm -hmm. longer the magic level is artificially maintained, higher than it should be, you're basically putting a whole lot of potential, like imagine a an elastic band stretching between, I'm showing Dan in the camera here, like my <laughs> fingers are... are pulling apart but imagine an elastic yes. band that is basically stretching and stretching and stretching at yes. some point that's gonna, gonna snap, snap. Be and, and you know and when that happens hey look the island of thera basically explodes and um the magic level very very quickly descends Resets. to where it should be and there is a huge magic cataclysm that basically obliterates a whole ton of evidence of this civilization uh, having existed at all in the past and only remembered as Atlantis, you know, sort of in the, the present day. Like that was the idea, exactly, yeah. you know, sort of the, the, the big deep long term. And again, it's not like this is a thing that is imminently going to happen. It's more like the centuries or whatever down the road. This is the eventual eventuality fate of what's of what's going to happen. Yeah theoretically and this is the part where i just start getting into conjecture stuff based on things like for example in the the dragons source book some of the stuff that um uh vast and jass talked about with regards to dragons particularly with regards to ritual magic um and one possible interpretation of the dragon's origin myth and and how that ties into vergigorm and uh not all wings, the, the, like the first dragon night, night slayer, night weaver, something like that. I don't have that story right in front of me. Um, but like that, that origin myth is a version of what maybe the dragons had done in the first place. And maybe possibly that the whole reason that there are magic cycles now to begin with is that the dragons did some super powerful ritual to banish the horrors 
uh, to like drive them out from the world. And that unfortunately caused a problem where now the magic cycles are going up and down and they're they go into hibernation during the low cycle because there's not enough magic to otherwise sustain. Like that is that's all me. That is like super conjecture based on various stuff. But um, I can and that see part that. of the reason like and that part of the reason why the like we're talking about not even we're the, the age of dragons we're talking about like maybe even before that so that when we get into the creation of the immortal elves and whatnot that the like part of the reason that the immortal elves and the dragons don't get along particularly in in the theron era in the the age of legend the fourth world is that the immortal elves at least the theron faction who want to dominate the world magically are kind of doing a similar thing to what the dragons may have done in the past and the dragons understand what a big deal that is and know that you know as vaz and jess said dragons have ritual magic we just really really rarely break it out um because (laughs) we know what it can do we know what it can do (laughs) you know when the dragons break out the ritual magic you get Stormhead being brought down on vivane you know, you yeah. get that kind of you get that kind we of know, thing. We know we know the nuclear bomb can do, which is why we don't use it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but like you know, the possibility that maybe the whole magic cycle thing is a result of a of a powerful dragon magic ritual gone awry, um, and the consequences of that meant that it put them into hibernation, where they were now like potentially they were um, vulnerable to mm-hmm. you know their their servants who would not. Uh, be able to who who were not forced into into hibernation during the the low magic cycle but the the theron marker of the um elemental air uh, elemental earth over the elemental water in the enchantment that elemental clock thing Mm -hmm. is not connected in terms of why the scourge like why the magic level stopped going down it just indicated that it was Thrall, scholars in Thrall theorized that maybe the Therans either didn't tell the complete truth or intentionally designed that to not actually indicate the safety uh, of what was going on in terms of the magic level because they wanted to have the opportunity to go out and retake the world in the face of greatly reduced opposition at the tail end of the Scourge, um, which is why Thrall kind of opened their gates early and started poking around because they didn't necessarily trust what the Therans had told them with regards to the the books of Harrow and the Scourge and the magic cycle and all that sort of thing. Fair. So his question was really, is it was it finally revealed somewhere in print why the Scourge stopped earlier than planned? So can he go look that up somewhere to, to reference that? I'm, I'm um, no, like maybe if you are good at at like Google search <laughs> magic, How's you might food? be able to find old interviews or discussions or that sort of thing with Lou Prosperi where some of that was revealed. But in terms of official published material. Yeah, canon. Not in any edition that I'm aware of as to to what that was. It was more a, well, we know that the magic level stopped. We know that... It's leveled out, yeah. You know, we know that it's leveled out. When we got the Theron Empire book, we learned about the three gigantic Orichalcum pillars there on Great Thera. Um, Mm -hmm. The 
outline slash proposal for Bar Save at War talked about the locusts under Vivain and what happened, you know, with the magician, the Theron magicians tapping into its power in the in the battle at Sky Point at the tail end of the Second War. And also, you know, how that affected Stormhead and things like that. Like that was something that was sort of in the the initial outline and proposal for that big final battle. And it was just kind of a matter of at the time that that came out, Lou being asked questions by fans on email lists and whatnot and, you know, his answers to those. Fair. So, uh, thank you, Message from Poland. We love the discussion you brought in. Sorry you don't have all the books. Um, the collectors, uh, like myself, who've gone into debt to get them all, <laughs> I don't advise that. But eventually I got dug out of the debt, so I'm, I'm okay there now. But otherwise, um, yeah, the more you can get more you can get your hands on to read, the better you can. And, uh, you know, uh, PDFs are always available as well. So they're probably a little bit cheaper. And I think Josh has mentioned a, a number of times the Fawcett Games web store has everything, including the Earthon journals, by the way, yeah. everything in PDF. all of the for, so. for every every edition that was that was like all of the books, first, second, classic, third, fourth. Um, the yeah. journals, you know, all of those are available um, online, both at um, both at our web shop and uh, drive through RPG as well. Yeah, most so I'm not. Totally I really. think everything's a drive through at this point. I think so. I want to say so. I'm not sure I've seen the journals there, but I haven't looked for the journals because I, ha I have them in print actually. Uh, so we got a last email. Actually, got a voicemail from mm -hmm. Tristan. Yep. And if I can figure out a way to actually import that, I will import that into this file. And so people can actually hear Tristan say, I just want to say great podcast, uh, particularly agree with Josh's take on the quick and the dead being an underrated Leonardo DiCaprio film, slightly off topic, but um, yeah, after basketball diary, probably his second greatest performance. Anyway, loving the specials. Keep it up. Thanks. Bye. He had a comment, and then he actually mentioned that he's enjoying the specials, which I will take the feedback on that as positive. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, just, a, that, just a brief little voice. That is something, by the way, that is yes. available to anybody if you want to take advantage of it. Um, you just go to our to to the the Anchor FM site. Like if you if you follow the link that I tweet out, that's the direct link to the episode somewhere yeah. in there. You there's a link where you can actually record your own voice message and leave that if you want to. Um, and yes. much like with our emails, if you want to do that, but you don't want it to be included uh, in the show, then just feel free to to mention that. But we'll drop that in here at the tail end. It's not that long, um, mm -hmm. but it was it was nice. It's not something that we had advertised, but I had turned it on as a feature when we set up the um <laughs> the podcast when I was setting everything up beforehand. So, yeah. so it was, Tristan, it was a great. thousand legend points to you for being our very first voicemail after 50 plus episodes, thousand points to you, sir. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to take that as, as a win. So otherwise folks, if you want to contact us with your emails or, uh, support for Josh, uh, um, please feel free to do so at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Um, Yeah. 53 in the bag. Here we go. Any final thoughts, Josh? 2020 can't be over soon enough. 2020, been... the year 2020 is the longest decade on record. And I thought 2016 sucked. And it did, by the way. Um, 
but 2020, it kind of takes the cake right now. So yeah, I lost my brother in 2016. Josh lost his wife in 2020. We have both been hit by tragedy along the way. Uh, my tragedy shuttered my first podcast, but this one's going to keep going as long as Josh wants it to go on. So Josh, I thank you for having me here. Thank uh, you. On behalf of every me. listener we have, I am sorry, but um, yeah, we'll, 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 life must go on and the show must go on. So yeah, here we are. Here's the show. Otherwise folks, um, we'll catch you in a week or so. We'll get out the episodes as often as we possibly can. Hopefully no other tragedy befalls us. Cause I, you know, I can record more legends. There's, you know, 40 odd th- th- to get through. Uh, but I don't necessarily have to, I will, <laughs> if threatened, I will threaten again. I will. But otherwise, folks, uh, thank you for listening. Now, everyone, it's time for you to go make your own legend. Have a good night, everybody. 